Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I've got a question as we begin this morning. Looking back at your life, who do you know that is a morning person? I'm safe. We're in the 11 o'clock service. I know there's no morning people here. But you probably have at some point lived, you've had a relative, a roommate, someone who was a morning person, and they saw it as their job to wake everybody up. (laughs) Or maybe you had an alarm clock that would come on suddenly and get you out of bed. Uh, For me, if I think back, the the most startling um, wake-up call it really, in my life, was a soccer camp I used to go to as a kid. Um, anyone here who played very competitive soccer in the 90s in Georgia may know of the Ralph Lundy soccer camps. Ralph Lundy, uh, former Marine, um, I actually think he got shut down <laughs> because his camps were severe. Um, you know, this was in the old days where, like, it's July, and if you have heat stroke, it's, hey, you weren't in good enough shape, get up. <laughs> Keep playing, none of this uh, needing water stuff. But he had a coach that was a master at awakening young men and women at 5 a.m. for drills on the parking lot. Um, This guy had served as an assistant national team coach in Trinidad and Tobago. And he would go up and down these halls. We actually, it was at Berry College. We were in the dorms there. And he would beat on the walls, beat on the doors, and say, rise and shine, happy campers. And you would hear him going through all of the halls. Rise and shine, happy campers. And I bring that up because, well, we're talking about John the Baptist today. And John the Baptist is equally as loud. It's like he's out in the wilderness, in the desert, pounding on the walls, saying, rise and shine, get ready. Your king has come. John the Baptist is a huge wake-up call, an alarm clock. He's actually prophesied as a voice. His voice is the point. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. If you went to uh, to Hallmark or a store like that and you bought an Advent card, I kind of wish there were like Advent card sections in Kroger. It'd be kind of fun, right? But, But if you did, there would be a picture on the front of that Advent card and it should have John the Baptist. Camel hair wearing, frenzied, spit coming out of his mouth, crazy in the best sense of the term, John the Baptist. That's the icon of Advent. This fiery prophet of warning, announcing the coming of the Lord and warning us to get ready for that coming. Warning them to get ready for the coming of Jesus. And and that voice echoing through Decades and decades, centuries and centuries, saying Christ will come again. Get ready. Prepare. Make straight the paths in the wilderness. Um, Some of you might know the author and pastor Fleming Rutledge. Fleming is probably the premier uh, female preacher in, in the U.S., maybe the world right now. And she's written this great book on Advent. I would highly recommend it. But reflecting on John the Baptist, here's how she describes him. That after 2,000 years, he still stands there irreducibly strange, uh, 
gaunt, unruly, lonely, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. John the Baptist standing at the edge of the universe, at the dawn of a new world, the turn of the ages, calling God's people to turn away from sin, to turn away from bondage, and to get ready for a future of promise and freedom. John the Baptist. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. We're in the Advent season where we think about the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, when he was born, and look forward to when he will come again. Um, you might actually think of John the Baptist. I, I almost, I have in my notes here to use a football analogy of a blocking back heading into the end zone, but... I decided today is not the day for football analogies. <laughs> so we're just going to keep going. Um, let's look at Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at these first three verses and, and the way John the Baptist embodies a, really a throwback movement, getting ready for this prophetic moment that we have uh, in Luke. And the first thing you'll notice is a timestamp of names and places uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And you're probably thinking, so far, so good. I've heard of Caesar. I've heard of Pilate. I've heard of Herod. They all appear in the New Testament. These are significant figures. And then it keeps going. His brother Philip and uh, Trachonitis. If you had that, you know, if you were doing like Scrabble, you can't put Trachonitis down. <laughs> Lysanias. Tetrarch of Abilene, that's at least a place in Texas, so I know how to say Abilene. Um, but I, I, I want to just say, like, I get that this initial list is weird. Uh, some of these names are familiar, but it's just, it's, it's, you feel that this is from a different time and place, don't you, when you read these names and places? Um, I actually texted uh, Deacon Joe and Deacon Tex this week. I said, hey, heads up, you're going to read Luke 3 in church you might want to double check those proper nouns before we get to it, because they're a doozy. And that text did pretty good, right? Like 10 out of 10. I was impressed. Uh, Joe did really good the last service as well. Uh, but we get just these names and these places. And, and two things I think are interesting from that. Um, one is we're just reminded, I think, that, that the story of Jesus doesn't float off in time and space, you know, somewhere else but it's rooted and it's tethered to a specific time and place here and now. That, that in the first century, in this place, when these people were in charge, here's what was happening. It's tethered. It's anchored in history. And Luke, the, the author of this gospel, will kind of make that point. He wrote Luke. He wrote Acts. And he'll say, hey, I went and did some research. I want you to know I've done my homework. I want to tell you what happened with this person, Jesus. So this is rooted in real history and fact. Um, the second is these names tell a story. I mean, think about it. We're, we're used to this. If you said, hey, during the presidency of George W. Bush, that anchors you somewhere, right? During the Obama presidency, that, that, you know what that is. You know what that means. It can stand as a, as a caption. And in a similar way, when Luke is saying, here's who was in charge, that tells a story. These are very familiar figures uh, in the first century. 
Bishop N.T. Wright says, behind this list of names and places is a story of oppression and misery building up to an explosion point. That's what you hear, these names, these places. Like, hey, this is when stuff was getting pretty crazy. And into that tension, that simmering tension, steps John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. We learn elsewhere a little bit about him. He was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts. He ate wild honey. Um, And by the way, that's not from bees. This is the honey from dates, primarily. Um, Like when you hear that they went into a land overflowing with milk and honey, that's goat's milk and date honey um, that they're going in to receive and to feast on. But I've actually thought, you know what, John, man, wouldn't he fit in well in Athens? (laughs) Let me just think about it. He's eating organic, desert-to-table locusts. Wearing fair trade camel's hair. I mean, he is the right kind of crazy, right? John the Baptist. A few things are clear when we look at his ministry. Um, The first is he's a huge deal. Uh, There are people from all over Israel responding to his message and ministry. Um, They're going out, and it takes a little effort to get to the wilderness, to go and to hear from this prophet and experience Um, his ministry, Um, he's not from the wilderness. He's from Jerusalem. His dad is like a big-time religious leader, Zechariah the priest, who went in to serve in the Holy of Holies. Like, he's from the city, but he's out in the wilderness, and folks are noticing it. Secondly, what's he doing? Well, he's, he's baptizing people. He's baptizing everybody. Um, And to be clear, this was not done in Israel. And that's what we might miss that. Because you just hear, oh, he's baptizing people. Cool, great. I'm glad he's doing that. Um, some of you may have been baptized outside in a river. Kind of like, oh, we're going to do it like this. That's a common thing people do. Well, in the first century, the only people that were baptized were non-Jews, pagans, Gentiles. And, and the idea was that the, the Israel, I mean, they were God's chosen people. And they, had, they, they were in the family. Um, Young boys that were circumcised on the eighth day, like you're in. You're part of the covenant promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you're one of those pagans, we need to do a little extra cleansing work for you because you've, you've like lived life and you've been, you've been bad. And so we would baptize you for repentance so that you could be part of the people of God. And so get that what John's doing is John is coming on the scene saying that we're all in the position of pagan Gentiles in need of repentance and cleansing, even those of us who seem to think we're squeaky clean and righteous. That's part of the edge of Advent. We have John the Baptist saying, hey, you friends who think you're squeaky clean and righteous, what work may God want to do? What things still need to be cleansed and cleaned out, transformed, made ready for King Jesus? Notice where he is. He's in the wilderness, the desert. Um, And it's significant that whenever you're reading through the Bible, the the wilderness is this whole entire mood and theme. But when God's people find themselves in the wilderness, it's usually a time of of testing, 
of meeting with God, of being near to his presence. The first time we really see it is when, when Israel, God's people, are freed from slavery in Egypt, they end up in the wilderness, a time of testing. They're set apart. They experience God's presence, his provision. Um, they actually do a, you know, 40 years, but, but the idea is that they're in the wilderness. God is working in their lives um, and what, when we see here that, you know, a little bit later, Jesus is taken to the wilderness, right? He's baptized, actually, by John. So this kind of connects. And he's taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Forty days. We, we think of Lent. We get Lent from this. We have the wilderness as always this huge theme and mood, and it's in the scriptures. The wilderness is where really people who were serious about God would go to start over, especially here in the first century. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and I think actually kind of leaning into the idea of the wilderness is the best way to really think through this passage and just kind of what John the Baptist brings us in the Advent season. We, we sometimes think of like the season of Lent as this wilderness desert season, 40 days, just like Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. But there's a wilderness desert to be found in Advent in this preparation season. Uh, one of my pastor friends says that whereas Lent leads us uh, to deny ourselves and take up our cross. That's the Lenten wilderness idea. Advent leads us into the wilderness to get ready so that we're prepared for the coming of Christ's kingdom in its fullness. Everywhere in the Bible, the wilderness is a crucible of transformation and growth. God is usually wonderfully present to provide for his people, to teach them, to train them. It's never an easy season. When they're out in the wilderness and the desert, well, think about it. The normal comforts, the normalness of life has been stripped away to get their attention so they can pay attention uh, to God. Um, I've thought about this actually quite a bit during the pandemic season. Um, and it, it's, it's always tricky to kind of look at the scriptures and go, oh, we're going through that. And so it's usually more by analogy. We're going through something like that. But when I think about, man, we spent 70 Sundays wandering, <laughs> mainly outside, online, and God met us and provided for us. And in, in the season where comfort and normalcy was taken away, the Lord said, am I enough? And we see the Lord's provision. We see the Lord's guidance, just like when Israel was in the wilderness, just like what John's doing here. The wilderness, this place of, of really hope, of new beginnings. Uh, the wilderness is where the Lord had met with Israel, made them into a people. Uh, before they kind of rebelled and grumbled, and I'm sure our wilderness season had no rebelling and grumbling, right? Well, it was like a honeymoon period for Israel when they had come right out of Egypt. And things were sweet until the golden calf, of course. But the wilderness... The desert. It's interesting. When you read the Old Testament prophets, and they're kind of wild, right? Well, you heard from Malachi 3. Weren't you glad it was a short passage? I didn't know where he was going to go. He's going to get in all of our business. He's just listing people that someone's going <laughs> to get teed off on. Um, but you read the Old Testament prophets, and over and over again in the Old Testament prophets, um, what you hear from them is God's going to do something new. He's going to meet his people again. 
And it's going to be very similar. They're going to go out and find themselves again in the wilderness. Just like when Israel was freed from slavery in the Exodus, well, God's going to come up and do something new, a new kind of Exodus. Uh, Freeing his people not from literal bondage, but freeing them from the bondage of sin and death and the evil one. It'll be like this time in the wilderness. So you have prophecies in Malachi, this idea in Isaiah 40, there's going to be a highway, a path in the wilderness. God is going to do something again. And so in the first century, if folks wanted to be uh, the true people of God or the renewed people of God, they'd go to the wilderness. They're like, hey, we're going to get back to first principles. We're going to get back to first things. Um, John probably wasn't alone in the desert, in the wilderness. You, you probably heard of like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found that the Dead Sea Scrolls are these um, documents they found out in the Judean wilderness we found that they're the, they're the, the scrolls of this, this group, this community. They're called the Qumran community. And they had these little huts and villages. They're all, all out in the wilderness. Um, John was probably friends with these folks, probably traded with them, got to know them well. The wilderness actually was kind of full of people in the first century. And what these people had in common is they had all looked around at life in Jerusalem and said, whoo, this isn't working. We're compromised. Our religious leaders, they don't have our best interest at heart. The temple itself seems like it is sold out to our oppressors. Uh, The leaders, they've bought their way into power. No, we need to purify ourselves. We need to go back and start again. So they would go to the wilderness. That's a normal impulse. It seems weird for us, right? But that's what they would do in the first century. Now, you read the the Dead Sea Scrolls and you see what that community was doing. Well, they were trying to get the the clock of salvation history ticking again. And we see John the Baptist as this alarm clock, crying, crying out, baptizing people for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, asking God's people to look inside and see what is amiss, what needs to to be cleared um, you might know there's a, there's a Christmas carol we often sing, and it says, let every heart prepare him room. You know that song? That's what Advent is. You're preparing the room of your heart for the coming of the Lord. You're, you're taking stock. You're saying, where do I need to, to repent? Um, and I would say that our Advent preparations for Christmas should begin with repentance and, and rejoicing that the Lord comes, not to scold us in our sin or our bondage, but to lift it from us, to invite us into something new and better. Like he says in Matthew, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what John's up to, this throwback movement to get God's people moving again. So let's talk about this specific prophetic moment, Luke 3, 4 through 6, because John appears, he's fulfilling Isaiah 40, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he's getting everyone ready for his cousin, Jesus. In many ways, he's a hinge. John the Baptist is the hinge between the Old and New Testament in many ways. 
He's a hinge between this long line of prophets and the first of the martyrs and apostles. You know, he loses his head in a few chapters for speaking up against Herod. Um, He's bold, he's loud, he's, he's again the right kind of crazy. He's a blinking arrow in the wilderness, clearing the way for Jesus, getting folks ready. That's his function, to prepare the way. Um, Isaiah 40 had prophesied this path in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, this voice crying out, and it actually prophesied John. I just think that's worth noting. John is not just some random leader, even if, I mean, he could be random and his message would still be important, but he's specifically the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, this voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. There's, there's road work going on in the desert, clearing a path. I always think of the Advent season like this. I want to give you just a picture to think of. Um, how many of you came down this hill on the way to the chapel this morning? A lot of folks. Um, probably when we first started meeting in this chapel uh, a couple years ago, um, late fall, all these leaves would start falling, right, from the trees. And they would cover that path right there. Um, It's pretty treacherous. We were a little worried that someone would slip or fall. And um, as we were trying to come up with a plan, before we know it, one of our Guys in the church had just taken it upon himself to show up with a leaf blower. And he would show up early and he would clear the path. Um, He's with the Lord. He died earlier this year. And so we turned around late fall and up, someone else had come with the leaf blower. They had taken up that baton uh, to clear the path, to make it straight. Um, That's what Isaiah 40 is talking about. And it's not a bad image, is it? During Advent, they go, hey, what, what, if I think of your own heart and, and your inner life like a path, hey, what leaves have fallen and crowded it? Where am I prone to slip and fall? What things have unseasonably come upon my life and say, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you come almost with a leaf blower and just clear these things out? Get me ready again. Show me Things where I'm not even aware that I'm, you know, this is dangerous. I'm playing with fire in this area. Would you come and would you cleanse again? Would you clean up? Would you transform? Would you prepare? That's what's going on here. Um, St. Ambrose is a fourth century church father. We actually sang one of his songs uh, a little bit earlier, Savior of the Nations Come. We like to sing songs that are like 1,500 years old in our church. Um, Ambrose, great, great leader. He says this of John. He says that voice and crying go together. This prophet, that the voice preaches faith and the cry calls for repentance. The voice comfort, the cry danger. The voice sings mercy. The cry announces judgment. There's this double idea of Advent where we hear comfort and joy and peace and then we go, Lord, help us. The Lord is coming again. Let's prepare. Let's get ready. Let's take stock of our lives. God's people have been waiting for a sign, a word, a prophet, or prophecy from God that he had not abandoned them. And here comes John in the wilderness, calling God's people to get ready, to cleanse themselves. 
Um, and when I say that, this, I think what's the most interesting about John the Baptist, I said this a little bit earlier though, is he's not just going to the, the likely candidates for repentance. I mean, a lot of us can go, oh, that person over there probably needs to repent. Have you ever been in a church where like the pastor's going on and on about a sin and someone's just elbowing their neighbor? That's, that's just me. I'm the only one who's been elbowed like that. Okay, good. Um, no, there, there's sometimes obvious things. We know, of course, we need to repent of that. Of course, that's not in accordance with God's best for us. But John the Baptist comes and says, hey, we all have things that we can repent of and get ready. And that we all have things that not only do we do wrong, but there's things that we all do, even as a people, even as a community. And let's take stock of these things. Let's, let's prepare. Let's realize that it's, as we see in the scriptures, the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so we're left in the Advent season going, even those of us who, who seem squeaky clean, where does the Lord want to work? What work could he do in our lives? And it could be disruptive, like road work in the desert, preparing a highway for our God. Um, Francis Spufford is a modern-day apologist. He wrote a book called, um, well, I forget what it was called, but um, he's talking about what the church should be like, what the community of God's people should be. And he says, of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people that are shiny and happy and squeaky clean. I think he was channeling REM, that's just me. And excluding the bad people that are frightening and alien and repulsive for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. And this goes flat contrary to the predominant image that folks often have of the church that it exists in these prissy, fastidious little enclaves far from life's mess and far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. It says, of course, there are Christians like that. And the religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be that way. He defines the church as a league of the guilty, a fellowship of sinners who are being honest about our sin and rejoicing in our Savior. That's what this is. That's what this is all about. And so as we continue entering into the wilderness season of Advent, let's heed the words of the prophet. Let's answer his great wake-up call. Um, take time to take stock of your life. See what, what leaves may have fallen on the path. Confess our sins, repent, and prepare. Again, trusting not in our own strength or willpower. We don't, we don't get ourselves into this mode. Just like my 15-year-old doesn't get himself out of bed. No, we need to be led. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to do this work in our lives, to continue this work in our lives as we wait during the Advent season. Indeed, Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he will come again. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.